All right, we'll invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. As we continue on in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew chapter 6. We're in verses 16 to 18 this morning. So we're going to read those verses together. Excuse me. So Matthew chapter 6, beginning in verse 16. Our Lord said, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces, that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So if you remember back uh, into verse 1 of chapter 6, there Jesus gave us the main principle that is then worked out and applied throughout this section that we've been looking at, through verses 1 through to here, verse 18. Uh, So in verse 1, Jesus said, Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So that warning is a caution about doing our righteous deeds so as to be seen and so as to then receive praise from other people. So it reveals that you are called, disciples of Christ, believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, are called to practice your righteousness for the pleasure and honor of God, not in order to receive man's praise. In other words, Jesus is showing us how to practice the righteousness that he has outlined for us back in chapter 5. And so he then states that principle in verse 1, and then it gets worked out throughout this section, uh, beginning first in verses 2 to 4 with uh, giving to the needy uh, or, or giving alms, so helping other people. We can broaden that out, helping other people, giving to the poor. That's verses 2 to 4. Then he works it out in the matter of our praying, in verses 5 through 8. Then in verses 9 to 15, he gives a little further teaching on prayer and and how to pray as we have the Lord's Prayer. And then he returns to kind of this formula that he has used twice already in verse 16, and he applies this principle to this area of fasting. I don't know what you think of when you hear the word fasting, what you think of that practice. I wonder if you do it, if you've ever done it. I wonder how many here would this be a regular thing? Uh, How many here are maybe committed to not fasting even? There's all kinds of opinions out there about fasting. And as with so many teachings in the Bible, I think that there are two ditches that we can fall into with this matter of fasting. And for, for lack of better terms... Uh, the two ditches we'll just call overemphasis and underemphasis. Someone else could come up with better words, but it'll work. So we can overemphasize uh, fasting. That's one ditch. And this comes in different forms. Many teach it and present fasting as this missing key to the Christian life. Uh, why is it you struggle? You find yourself battling and wrestling with sin or not getting the things you desire, etc. Well, 
you don't fast or you don't fast enough or you don't fast in the right way. Uh, if you just quickly search for books on fasting, I went to a Christian bookstore online and looked up fasting. Uh, it's very obvious. This is what the majority of those books are, are saying. In fact, the very first one to pop up, I think it's a well-known book. Uh, the subtitle is the, the Key to Releasing God's Power in Your Life. Right? What's the key to God's power in your life? Fasting. That's what this book is saying. Such books, such an overemphasis, put a weight upon Christians that they just simply ought not to do, that the scriptures don't do. It tells you that you must fast because, after all, it is a key or the key to the Christian life or the key to God doing something for you. And they mislead these books do. They mislead Christians in this way. This is, as we'll see, this is not what the Bible teaches about fasting. So there's various ways it gets overemphasized. It becomes this new legalistic thing that's weighed upon you. And of course, it's not what the fasting is. It's not the way the Bible teaches it. So you fast and fast and you try and you try and you find yourself to be no further along uh, necessarily in the Christian life. So it puts an overemphasis on it. But there's another ditch I would submit, which is underemphasis, where fasting is not even on the radar in any way. It's maybe not even, it never enters the mind as a valid thing that you might do. Uh, perhaps some might even argue that Christians shouldn't fast, that maybe fasting is really more something that was for the Old Testament times and the Old Testament saints. So I think and I hope what we'll see is that the sweet spot there is somewhere in between those two. It is not some secret key to the Christian life, but nor is it just a practice that we should just simply dismiss out of hand. And so what I want to do is begin by giving a brief overview of fasting in the Bible. So the first point of our outline will be a biblical overview of fasting. And then we're going to get into the text uh, of Matthew 6, 16 to 18. And our, so our second point of the outline will be the wrong way to fast. And then the third point will be the right way to fast. So we'll begin with a biblical overview of fasting. So first of all, what is fasting? What are we talking about when I use that word? What's, we, we need a definition. Well, I think a very simple definition that I think is accurate, uh, that, I, that I read this week in study, it's not mine, but I think it's good and helpful, is that fasting is abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. Abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So we'll We'll work that out a little bit as we go. But just considering this definition for a moment, notice it's first abstaining from food. So as we think about fasting in the Bible, it's abstaining from food. We talk today, people talk today about fasting from all kinds of things. I'm going to fast from television. I'm going to fast from my phone or social media. I'm going to do fasting of all these different sorts. Um, you know, some luxury or novelty I'm going to just do without it for a bit. Uh, that might be good. A lot of these principles would apply to such a thing. Um, but when the Bible speaks of fasting, it is referring to abstaining from food, which of course is not a luxury. It's a necessity of life, right? So when the Bible speaks of it, it's an abstaining from food. Also, this definition reminds us that fasting serves a higher purpose it is abstinence from food for spiritual purposes. So 
Fasting in and of itself is not, is not just, just not eating food, I should say, in and of itself uh, is not biblical fasting. There's a, there's a purpose behind it. So t- today, people will t- I, I know people who do intermittent fasting and they do this for health reasons. Um, again, that might have validity to it. I cannot tell you one way or the other. Uh, but that's not what biblical fasting is, intermittent you know, fasting for health purposes. Fasting in the Bible is not about your diet. It's not about a dietary health plan. It's not really about your physical health at all. It's about spiritual needs. This also reminds us that fasting is not an end in itself. Again, simply not eating isn't a godly act in and of itself. The act of fasting in Scripture serves another purpose, namely a spiritual one. It is tied, as, and we'll see this, it is tied to humility, humbling oneself before the Lord and seeking mercy from Him. It's often tied to repentance. It's seeking, tied to seeking God's help in some situation. Mercy from Him, His kindness, His aid, grace from Him. And so fasting is abstinence from food for a spiritual purpose. So we're just going to briefly go through a number of, of, of texts. I'm not going to flip to them all or quote from them all, but uh, a number of texts from the Old Testament, and, uh, and then we'll, we'll look into the New as well. So in the Old Testament, we find fasting um, fairly often, I would say. However, there's only one fast in the Old Testament that was a command from God a command to fast regularly. That's only one regular fast that Israel was to do. And that came on the Day of Atonement. So in Leviticus 16.29, it says, And it shall be a statute to you forever in the seventh month, on the tenth day of the month, you shall afflict yourselves. That affliction is referring to fasting. You shall not eat. And you shall do no work, either the native or the stranger who sojourns among you. For on this day shall atonement be made for you to cleanse you. You shall be clean before the Lord from all your sins. It is a Sabbath of solemn rest to you, and you shall afflict yourselves. It is a statute forever. So that's the only fast that was a regular part uh, of, of the uh, religious life of Israel that was commanded by God. We see that repeated in Leviticus 23 and Numbers 29, all when it's describing this day of atonement. So it was commanded and it was tied to this ultimate day in the Jewish calendar when the high priest would go into the most holy place. Remember, that's once a year on this day of atonement. He goes to seek mercy from God, to bring the people before the Lord, before the mercy seat that they might find mercy from God. And fasting was something the nation was to do as a part of that Day of Atonement. So that's the only regular fast we find being prescribed in the Old Testament. However, the Old Testament does have a lot of other examples of fasting on particular and specific occasions. In Judges chapter 20, verse 26, the people of Israel there wept and fasted after they were defeated in battle. And they sought the Lord on whether they should take up arms again. Do we go back to this battle tomorrow? What do we do? Uh, we've been defeated. And they weep and they fast and they seek the Lord's guidance and wisdom. 
In 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 6, the Samuel, the prophet Samuel, had confronted the people of Israel. He had confronted their idolatry. And in response to that, the people fasted. They fasted and they confessed their sins to God. It's tied there to a humbling of the people before the Lord and a confession of their idolatrous ways and a putting away of their idols. It's tied to repentance, seeking mercy from God. In 2 Samuel chapter 1, verse 12, David and the others with him, they fasted as they mourned the death of King Saul and his son Jonathan. And along with them, all the others who had fallen by the sword in Israel. So it's tied there to this sad, really horrific event. The king has, been, uh, has died, his son as well, a number of the men of Israel. This civil war, if you will, this uh, battle between David and, and Saul. Saul has been rebellious. This is a, a tragedy. As much as it results then in David taking the throne, uh, it is a tragedy indeed. David mourns it, so do the others with him. And they fast as part of that. Just as a side note here, I was listening. Many of you will know who Mike Abendroth is. Uh, he, he pastors in the States and, and has a podcast. And some of us have, have heard him preach at a, in uh, uh, Saskatoon. Uh, I was listening to him this week talk about fasting. And um, one of the things that he just mentioned is that often when we find fasting in the scriptures, it's during a time when you know, naturally our bodies might not really desire food in that moment anyways in the first place. A time like mourning, when we're in great mourning, we're not like typically starving. We, we don't really feel like hunger. Or when our, you know, there's an enemy army that is, a, is surrounding us right now, right? We're, we feel, when, those times when you might feel sick to your stomach and food's kind of the furthest thing from your mind. That same thing can happen when you've been confronted with your sinfulness and you understand the weight of this before God. So often we do find fasting that coincides with maybe those natural periods where we aren't even very hungry to begin with. So that's just an aside. So carrying on then, also in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 21 and 22, after David had sinned with Bathsheba and she was pregnant and God said one of the consequences for this sin was the child was going to die, David fasted for his son. He fasted in hopes, he says very plainly, that God might show grace and mercy and spare the child's life. So he was fasting, he was praying, he was seeking grace and mercy from God on behalf of this child. Interestingly, worth noting, David did not receive his request, did he? The child did in fact die. So this is, I think, puts a giant hole in the argument that Fasting somehow is this unleashing of God's power. Well, it didn't work for David in this case, did it? It didn't make it wrong, but God chose to answer it with no. In 2 Chronicles chapter 20, this is a passage that was read for us earlier. King Jehoshaphat was afraid when a great multitude came against Judah for war. Verse 3 says, Jehoshaphat was afraid and set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. So you have them seeking the Lord, seeking his help, his mercy, his grace, save us, spare us from this. And they put away food and they gave their time to seeking the Lord, to praying, to calling out to him. In Ezra chapter 8, verse 21, 
the exiles who were preparing to return to Jerusalem under Ezra held a fast prior to this perilous journey they were going to make. It says, then I proclaimed, this is Ezra, then I proclaimed a fast there at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him a safe journey for ourselves, our children, and all our goods. For I was ashamed to ask the king for a band of soldiers and horsemen to protect us against the enemy on our way. Since we had told the king, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. So we fasted and implored our God for this, and he listened to our entreaty. Again, it is tied to humbling ourselves before our God, Ezra says. They're calling out to him for help, for a legitimately dangerous journey they're about to make without the help of soldiers. And in this case, it says God listened to their entreaty. He brought them safely to Jerusalem. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we read of Nehemiah and his response when he hears about the condition of Jerusalem and the walls that are destroyed still. He responds in verse 4 that he fasted and he's on his face and he's calling out to God and he's praying to God, asking for help, asking God to forgive and to rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. In the book of Esther, chapter 4, verse 16, Queen Esther sent out word to the Jews. They were to fast, presumably to seek God's mercy. She was going to go to the king, which she was not to do without being summoned. Even though she was the queen, she could be put to death. That's the law of the land. So she's praying. I think the implication of the fast is that they're seeking God's mercy for her, that her Approaching the king would be received and that her plea would be accepted and the people, the Jews, would be spared from slaughter. So this is a number, just a brief overview of a number of the texts that we find. And what you see there is that fasting is not an end in itself. It serves a spiritual purpose. It is connected to humility before God, to prayer, often during a time of great trouble a time of mourning. Sometimes it is tied to repentance. And always it is tied to seeking God through prayer, seeking mercy from Him and help from Him. So it is putting off food in order to be humbled before God and seek Him in prayer. This is what we mean by spiritual purpose to it. We also see fasting that is criticized in the Old Testament. Jesus will offer a criticism here in Matthew chapter 6. But it's not the first place in Scripture we find it. We find it criticized in the Old Testament when it had become a mere formality. There were times when the people fasted, but it was not tied to any true humility before God. It was not tied to any true sort of desire for righteousness, for true inner righteousness, it became at times something the people would do and they would think that if we do this, then it's the key to unleashing God's power. And if we do this act, then God will act in a certain way. And there's times they would complain, we've done this, we've fasted and God hasn't done what we wanted. What's his deal? This is how they approach him. This is not unlike how many will approach him today. Well, I did all these things and he didn't do the thing I wanted. What good is this? 
Zechariah chapter 7 and verse 3, Isaiah chapter 58, also starting in verse 3, are two places where the prophets hammer on these people for this approach to fasting. God's not interested in this kind of fasting. If you're going to bypass true humility before God and any sort of true righteousness and just go on living for yourselves ultimately, but then just give up food for a while and expect this somehow puts God into your debt and now forces his hand to do the thing you want him to do. So this is fasting as we find it in the Old Testament. In the New we find that fasting had become a widespread and regular occurrence for many people. The Pharisees, we learn, fasted twice a week. We see that in Luke 18. We also learn of that through uh, extra-biblical sources as well. Other uh, sources that are not in the Bible that are talking about this period, where it's confirmed there, the Pharisees fasted twice a week. We find also in Matthew chapter 9 that the disciples of John the Baptist fasted often. So it's easy to think the Pharisees bad, uh, but the disciples of John the Baptist, good. Well, they, they were also fasting often. They even questioned Jesus' disciples in Matthew chapter 9 about why they don't fast. Pharisees do, we do. What's your problem? So in Luke 18 verse 9, Jesus tells a parable there of a Pharisee and a tax collector. Now it's a parable, and so it's a story Jesus is creating to illustrate a point, to make a point. But the Pharisee in the parable clearly represents the Pharisees of that day, or the vast majority of them anyway. And in fact, it represents all those who, quote, as Jesus said, or as, uh, sorry, Luke told us, this was aimed at all those who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And so the Pharisee, you recall, in that parable, speaks and says, he prays in the temple. Again, this is very close to what we find in the Sermon on the Mount. He's praying, it's loudly, it's in public, it's for everyone can see. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Notice how he's praising God even for how subtle this is. I'm not like these men, but yet he praises God even for that. And then he says, how how does he display his righteousness? I fast twice a week is the first thing he says. I'm not like these men, doorless tax collector. I fast twice a week. This was part of how in this parable, this Pharisee justified himself before God. It was his self-righteousness. This is how the Pharisees acted. They did these external things. This is my righteousness. They broadcasted for the world to see. Again, the fact that they really did fast twice a week is confirmed for us and other sources outside of the Bible as well. This was a common practice in Jesus' day, this twice weekly fasting. One of the things that I find interesting about that is that despite the lack of commands in the Old Testament to fast, right? There's, there's, One command for a regular fast, the Day of Atonement. And now we find there's this regular fast twice a week. You'd think it would be easy to say it's it's corrupted. Look how the Pharisees are doing this. It's self-righteousness. Do away with the whole thing. Have nothing to do with it. But this isn't what we find. 
Jesus never, in fact, condemns fasting at any point. Just the particular practice of fasting. So in Matthew 9, verses 14 to 17, John's disciples, as I mentioned, ask Jesus' disciples why they're not fasting. And Jesus responds that it is not the appropriate time for fasting because he, the bridegroom, is present with them. So he, you know, he, again, he illustrates it. When, when you're at a wedding and the bridegroom's there, that's not a time for fasting. That's a time for celebration, for feasting. And he's likening that to his presence with them. The Messiah is here. The bridegroom is here. This is a time for celebration, not fasting. And then he adds, in verse 15, the days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them and then they will fast. So what we find in, in these verses is that obviously twice weekly fasting was not necessary because Jesus and his disciples did not take part in that. If it was a necessary thing to do to be righteous, our Lord would surely have done it. So clearly that was not necessary to do. But also this does seem to imply that there would be a time when his disciples would in fact fast when he, the bridegroom, was gone from them, which would, indicate, which would be speaking of the time that he would ascend to the Father. Similarly, our passage today in Matthew 6, it is addressed to disciples of the Lord, to his people, kingdom citizens, and it assumes that there would indeed be fasting. Verse 17, but when you fast, he says. So just as Christ's disciples would give alms to the poor, help others, just as his disciples would indeed pray, so also they would fast. As we think of examples in the New Testament where we do find fasting, Jesus himself obviously fasted for 40 days in the wilderness. It's worth noting that that was a unique thing that Jesus did, a unique season, a unique moment and event in history. It was at the outset, the, 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 just before Jesus began uh, his public earthly ministry. He goes into the wilderness as the true Israel where Israel wandered and failed over their course of 40 years in the wilderness, Jesus is the faithful son, the true Israel. He succeeds, he's tempted, yes, but he comes through that temptation. He is declared to be the true son of God in that and in his baptism, and now he begins his earthly ministry. So I don't think that's something that is designed there to be a model for us to follow, that we have to do that if we're going to fast, or that's what we need to do, work ourselves up to 40 days. Nevertheless, clearly, Jesus fasted. We also see some of the early Christians fasting on a couple of particular occasions in the book of Acts. In Acts chapter 13, we find the church in Antioch was fasting and worshiping when the Holy Spirit told them, however he did this through the mouth of a prophet in all likelihood, told them to set aside Saul or Paul and Barnabas for a, uh, a missionary endeavor. And so they fast and they pray and they set these men off on their journey. They appoint them to this journey. Then in chapter 14, you jump ahead. 
We see that fasting accompanied in verse 23, fasting accompanied the choosing of elders in various towns on that missionary journey. So if I were to summarize what we find about fasting in the New Testament, we do not find fasting to be outlawed. It's not condemned by Christ or any of the apostles. We see Jesus fast. We find at least two other occasions in Acts where Christians came together and fasted. And we find it is indicated by Jesus that his disciples would indeed fast. But I want to also draw attention to three things we do not find about fasting in the New Testament either. We do not find any commands to fast. We are not told how often one should fast. Nor is fasting presented as some secret ingredient to the Christian life. There's noticeably little about fasting in the New Testament and nothing in any of the epistles. That's odd if it is the key to unleashing the power of God in your life, don't you think? So I would say then that the correct view is to see fasting as a legitimate and appropriate practice for Christians to engage in on particular occasions, though we must avoid binding consciences by creating unbiblical laws about fasting. Things like you must do it, you must do it this often, in this way, etc. So again, that definition we started with, I think, holds true and remains good and valid. That abstaining from food for spiritual purposes, to seek God, to pray to him, To seek him in his word is an appropriate act for Christians that you and I ought to put in our tool belt, so to speak, as we consider the Christian life. I do not think it is something um, that we should we engage in expecting to find some mystical answer to our problem. If I just do this, then surely God's voice will speak or I'll see something written somewhere and, and get my you know, sign that I'm looking for. That's not how we should engage in it. I don't think we should go into it with that understanding. I also think it is worth cautioning. If you have a major life decision to make, going many days without food uh, and then making that decision may not even be the wisest course of action. However, taking some time to avoid food and then to commit that time to prayer and to seeking God by reading his word and praying for wisdom, for help, whatever it is. This is a legitimate thing for believers to do. It's a good thing for believers to do. So before we get into back into chapter 6 here, just, just one more brief comment just to note. What is said here in Matthew chapter 6 about fasting also applies to other acts of self-denial. But if we think of fasting, we're denying ourselves food for another purpose, to pray, to seek God. So fasting, again, properly refers to abstaining from food, 
But we can and should apply the warnings and teachings that we find here to any other matter of self-denial. And we'll, we'll come back to that in a little bit. But So, so that's our brief overview of, of fasting in Scripture. So now let's look at, at specifically at chapter 6 of Matthew again and begin by looking at the wrong way to fast. That's in verse 16. Jesus says, And when you fast, do not look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they disfigure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. So once again, Jesus follows this pattern that we've seen when he addressed almsgiving in verses 2 to 4 and then prayer in verses 5 and 6. Same pattern is here. Do not fast as the hypocrites. Again, the hypocrites, these Pharisees, fall into that category. And others like them. What do they do when they fast? Well, they look gloomy. They put on a sullen face, a dark face. They look sad. They disfigure their faces. The Greek word for disfigure means to destroy or to cause something to be unrecognizable through change in appearance. They're distorting their normal appearance. Disfigure, I think, is a great translation of that word here. There's something obviously wrong with this person. It's the kind of face that makes you say, are you okay? It makes you ask, what's going on? What's happening here? This is not normal. This is not right. Oh, I'm just fasting. Oh, that's obviously a very great burden for you. This is obviously very difficult. That's the kind of face that elicits this sort of response from concerned people. And if one does it enough, then we see, oh, there's that look. It must be Tuesday, Kevin's fasting again. He has the fasting look. They distort their faces. It's a show. If you remember, that word hypocrite originally referred to play actors. And now these actors, they put on a face. I mean, how else is anyone going to know if you're fasting? You've got to reveal it somehow. This anguished face will reveal it. And then they'll be able to see that indeed you are doing a spiritual work. You're quite something. Again, they're doing it so that they may be seen by others. And as we've said, that means being praised by others. They want man's applause. They're letting the world know of their great godly acts by the distortion of their face. And once again, Jesus tells us that the praise of men, whatever praise of men they do receive, that's it. That's their only reward. This is not approved of by God. Once more, we're reminded that the Christian life is not one that seeks glory from men. True righteousness is first a matter of the heart, and the audience is ultimately God himself. So fasting done in order to get recognition from others, this is not righteous. This is not a noble pursuit. Moreover, that attitude, doing it for that purpose, completely contradicts the actual purpose of fasting. If fasting expresses humility before God, if it's tied to calling out to God for mercy and help, expression of our lowliness before God and seeking His aid, then doing that in order to receive man's praise, doing that for the audience of man, completely upends the whole idea of fasting. So whether you're fasting 
maybe engaging in some other form of self-denial. You've decided you're going to go without something that you otherwise could lawfully have. That desire, maybe it's a twinge. That desire, that feeling that you want to get some sort of recognition for it. That is something to mortify. That is sin. Again, we, if you are genuine, genuinely believer, a believer in the Lord Jesus, you've been born again, you, you know that this is sinful. And often we don't go into something like fasting or some other self-denial with an explicit attitude of, I'm going to do this so that others will think highly of me. But there's that someone notices and says something and that delight enters into your heart. Ah, when someone has seen it, I trust you, you, you know this wrestling. And just be reminded here, it is good to fight that sin, to repent of it, to squash it the moment that feeling arises, that thought arises, that delight in what man might think. So Jesus contrasts this wrong way, this distorting your face, trying to be seen by man with the right way to fast. This is verse 17 and 18. But when you fast, again, this paragraph implies that his disciples are going to fast. Anoint your head and wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. So it says to anoint your head. This is talking about anointing your head with an oil, with a perfume. Many point out here that what Jesus is saying to do here when he says anoint your head, wash your face, he's saying go through your normal routine of hygiene. Uh, Putting on perfume, he's not saying get all dolled up and, and and make a show now of your of how happy you are and, and smell. That, that would just be the same error, but a just different way of doing it. Oh, look, uh, you know, Kevin looks great today and, and smells of cologne. It's fast day for Kevin. Everybody's aware it's fast day now because he's, he's dressed up nicer. That's not what he's saying. He's saying look normal. He's just saying carry on as if nothing's happening, as if you're just eating normally. Don't make a scene. Don't draw attention to it. Again, the idea is that you do this before your father who is in secret. For whom are you seeking to perform your righteousness for? Who are you living for? It's not the praise of man. We do it in obedience to our God who has been gracious to us in Christ. And so fasting is about seeking God. It's primarily something that is between you and him. God is once more called here, your father who is in secret. So again, he is the father who art in heaven, but he is also the God who is there with you in private when there's nobody else around. When no one else is there to observe the good thing you do. He is in the secret place. And it says here he rewards actions done there for his pleasure and for his notice. That is an amazing thing. Again, that the God of the universe who spoke all of this into being 
is also there with us when no one else is around. And that God would be gracious and kind enough to reward something like fasting. Done in this way. Now we might wonder, as we read this again, what do we make of public fasting? Is a public fast ever appropriate? This seems to suggest maybe it's not. It says to fast so as to not be seen. But again, I would say this is similar to what we've seen earlier in this very section. In verses 5 and 6, we're told to pray in the closet. So we might wonder, is, any, is every public prayer wrong? Well, clearly that's not the case. In Scripture, we see all kinds of public prayers that are good, uh, that, are, that were known. Jesus himself prayed in front of others. We see the church gathering together in Acts to pray. We see many prayers offered publicly. It's a similar thing here. Verses 16 and 18 do not rule out a public fast. There's going to be times if you decided to fast where other people might know about it. Clearly, if you are married, there's somebody else is going to know. Your spouse is probably going to know if you're not eating that day. We also find in the New Testament and in the Old Testament that fasting was often very much a group thing that people did together. It's not condemned. What Jesus is getting at here once more, he's driving at why you do the things that you do. Whose honor is it you seek? Who is it you desire to please? Jesus is condemning piety that appears good externally, but is actually just a show that is not actually arising from a transformed heart within that is then done with sincerity before God. And so I would suggest that if a church called a fast in order to pray for a particular matter, I think that would be an appropriate thing to do. I don't think a church is permitted to hold it over somebody if they were, didn't participate or were unable to participate in it, but to call a fast for all who are able, for people to come, that would be appropriate. We see that in the New Testament as well. And the question for each person in such a case, where others might know you're fasting, is why am I doing this? At whose eyes am I living before? Whose eyes am I most concerned with? If you think about some of those Old Testament examples of fasting, in Ezra's day, as the people are about to head out on a perilous journey, that I'm pretty sure we have no idea, like we can't really comprehend such a journey uh, on foot all the way down to Jerusalem. And just how exposed they were to danger with young ones and so on. They're not gathering to fast because, man, I really hope that those people see how good of a person I am. Right? They're, they're facing a very real peril they're aware of. And so they just gather and they pray. It's the right thing to do. It's a good thing to do. And as they do that, they're fasting. They're just going to abstain from food and, and, and pray to the Lord. Same with Jehoshaphat's day we read earlier. The armies are encircling them. I think at that point, you know, trying to 
please the person beside you, you know, that we toss that out the window because I'm going to die if the Lord doesn't intervene. It forces the matter. So whatever the thing we might be praying for today, we think, why are we doing this? What are we seeking? Whose eyes am I most concerned with? So when you fast, make it above all between you and God, just as when you're praying with other people. Ultimately, you're praying first and foremost with God. And again, this principle applies to all of our external acts of righteousness. And so as we're thinking about fasting and self-denial, the same principles apply to all matters of self-denial. Self-denial, whether we're talking about food in the case of fasting or some other of life's good things or luxuries, simply denying yourself that is not an end in itself. That's asceticism. If I just do without this, that will make me a more godly person. If we would have some act of self-denial to have spiritual significance We must do it for legitimate spiritual ends, reasons, purpose. For example, one might decide to give up television, just not going to watch TV. That in and of itself does not make one godly. There are lots of people out there who just don't watch TV for different reasons, and they're not believers. There's various reasons one might come to such a conclusion. That's not righteousness in and of itself. But if you come to this matter with concern about honoring God, then you could give up TV for very good and godly reasons. You could deny yourself something that is maybe otherwise permissible in moderation, but you could decide to go without it for various good and godly reasons, to redeem that time, to put it to better use, to honor your Lord. That would be a good reason. You might do it to help with your battle with worldliness. Maybe it it leads you towards worldly thinking and worldly desires. Help you in your battle against lustful temptation, perhaps. Those would be great reasons to seek to do without it. But again, just simply throwing out the TV doesn't suddenly mean you have mastered whatever sin it is you're battling with. In and of itself... It's nothing. But as you pray, as you read God's word, as you seek to put that sin to death, such an act of denial could indeed be a great aid for you. And so if and when you do these sorts of things, don't, you don't have to announce it to the world. That's what Jesus is saying here. Don't announce it to the world. Others might find out, that's fine. It's not saying that now negates it all. But we don't broadcast that, well, we are the ones who don't have a TV. Because we are godly. We don't do these types of things for the applause of men. Christianity is not asceticism. Godliness is not simply found in the act of denying oneself. Otherwise, the Pharisees were good to go, were they not? Twice a week, they denied themselves food. Where we deny ourselves, it is for a greater purpose. 
We belong to our Lord Jesus. We are called to seek his honor, to seek after God's righteousness and his kingdom. So we need this reminder constantly. This reminder to be wary of our practicing righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, in order to have them praise us. I think this is a a, a continual threat, a continual temptation. I think there's a reason Jesus teaches us about this. Think of all the things in the Sermon on the Mount that could be here for us. And we're being taught about this matter. Beware practicing your righteousness before others to be seen by them. We are those who live our lives in the presence of God. The God who is here now, with us now, who is omnipresent. He's everywhere at once, including when no one else is around you. True righteousness is not a performance for other people. It is something that arises out of a heart that has been made new by the regeneration of the Spirit of God. And its aim is the pleasure of God ultimately, obedience to our our God. And as we go into next Sunday, we'll see this be tested yet further as Jesus will challenge us about what our hearts really do desire and treasure. So as as we think about this, Again, we're reminded once more, the Sermon on the Mount continually proclaims to us our need for the gospel. True righteousness is not a matter of a few external things. I just deny X or Y or don't eat a bit and behold, my righteousness. As we have seen, it it is the moral excellence of God himself, the very perfection of God at the end of chapter 5, Jesus tells us. We do fall short of it continually. And so we need this reminder that Christ Jesus has died and he has risen again from the dead for in order to save such sinners who fall short of God's righteousness. If your piety is all just a big scam for other people, You're just simply trying to impress someone else, mom and dad, other people, whoever it might be. Then this text calls you out as a hypocrite. If you are just simply seeking to look the part and just get through, and as long as man thinks well of me, certain people, And this calls you to repent of that, to acknowledge that for the sin it is, and to place your faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, who again died and rose again for such sinners, to save hypocrites, religious hypocrites or other. And for all who are trusting in Christ Jesus, who recognize this need for his grace and mercy, for his righteousness to be credited to our account, to have that be the basis of, the grounds of of our justification before God. For those who recognize, I mentioned Luke 18, the parable of the Pharisee and the tax collector. If you recognize you are the tax collector there with nothing 
to hold before God, to declare your righteousness, but simply your head drops and you beat your chest. You know you need God's mercy upon you, a sinner. And you are trusting in God's provision of mercy, the Lord Jesus Christ. Then rest assured once more that he is a great savior. And that he is able to save for the uttermost. And that regular yearly day of atonement that we talked about earlier from Leviticus chapter 16, which that fast was commemorating, was ultimately pointing to the perfect sacrifice, the Lord Jesus Christ, who put away sin forever for all who trust in him. Again, he has died for all of your sin. Rest in what he has done. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, once again, your word exposes us. We know that you look to the heart, not as man looks on the externals, but you look upon the heart. And if we deal honestly with you on the level of the heart, we know we've sinned often. We know as you have made clear that righteousness is a reflection of you and your perfections your moral uprightness. And so we are reminded again of our great need for your son and we thank you for your provision of your son. Father, I pray that you would work in us a a true humility, greater and greater humility, that we would desire, that, that we would see our need for you continually, that every breath we take, ultimately we take because you grant it to us that we have food in our tables because you ultimately have looked with favor and with kindness upon us and upon our lands. And that we would be those who are humbled before you and call out to you in prayer often. Father, make us serious about seeking you in your word praying to you. Forgive us where we fail so miserably in these areas. Father, I pray that we would joyfully deny ourselves certain things upon this earth for seasons or for long periods of time in order to perhaps use that time or take those resources and use them towards ultimate ends related to your kingdom. Father, I pray that as we consider these things that you would give us a desire for fasting, for denying ourselves, for reminding ourselves of how we live upon every word that comes from your mouth, ultimately. Father, that we would joyfully give up earthly pleasures and comforts if it meant gaining some spiritual good. And I pray that our greatest desire would be to live our lives in your presence before you, that you might be honored. Keep us from desiring to please men, whether it's one another in this church or those outside or whoever it might be. Father, help us to be those who do what we do out of obedience to you and out of gratitude for your grace to us.
Father, if there is are any here, young or old, who simply do some externals to do enough to pass a test, to get through, to please other people, that you would expose that in their hearts, that you might lead them to true repentance and faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, bless us as we continue through this day. We thank you for giving us this day and this time to gather and to focus upon you. We praise you together in Jesus' name. Amen.